I'm Rosie Maddio, and welcome to From Pot to Popular, a new podcast where we interview the media, marketers, and moguls who are mainstreaming cannabis. Welcome to today's episode of Pot to Popular. I'm your host, Rosie Maddio. Today, we are joined by Jonathan Rubin, Portfolio Analyst at Phyto Partners. I'm very pleased to have him today. Vital Partners is an investor in Maddio Communications, and Jonathan's going to join us today to talk about where he sees the opportunity in the cannabis space and some of the differences between the Canadian and U.S. opportunity. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for having me, Rosie. Excited to be with you today. I'm excited to have you here today. You know, um, we've gotten to know each other the past couple of years, and I- I've loved your positioning in the industry and your thought leadership, so excited to chat today. But really, let's start with your background to get our listeners up to speed. Can you give us a brief overview of your backgrounds and how you found your way to Fido Partners and to the cannabis space? Give us, you know, your founding story, your origin story, how you got into cannabis. Sure. And and to set the stage, you know, my goal is that listeners walk away understanding that we're at a pivotal inflection point for the U.S. cannabis industry, not to be confused uh, with the Canadian cannabis industry. U.S. cannabis is the great American growth story. Uh, Dominoes are falling into place with more states legalizing with every election cycle. Um, And for some background on me, a couple years back, I was working at a generalist private equity fund called Comvest Partners. They focus on control equity deals or buy majority stakes of companies. I worked in business development there, essentially networked with investment banks to ensure that we had visibility to all the deal flow in our target zone. I was responsible for doing brief screenings and analysis of companies, and and I wanted to do more. My goal was to play a role in the investment decisions for the fund and to get to speak and learn from founders like you. Um, I used to be a cannabis consumer. It's always been my drug of choice versus alcohol. And I knew the uh, the industry was actually at an inflection point uh, prior to joining Fido Partners with legalization taking place in Canada at the federal level and all the legislation on the, on the state front in the United States. And I wanted to see if I could break into the space. Um, and eventually an opportunity came about with FIDO Partners and I jumped on it. And at, FI- at FIDO, I, I participate in all the components of the VC ecosystem from deal sourcing to due diligence, portfolio company monitoring and investor relations. And I'm excited about the future of the cannabis space. And, and I have to say, you know, I, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a phyto portfolio company and I'm always impressed by the way you do diligence and you really ask the right questions and get to know the entrepreneur, you know, in, in addition to getting to understanding the business. And I think that's really interesting that you guys, not interesting, just a great way that you guys really connect with your portfolio company. So I've seen that. But so when you got to, when you, when you joined Fido Partners in 2018, were there any, like, were there certain investment opportunities that piqued your interest back then, like versus what you're doing now? Now, which we'll get to later, but really what was the investment thesis when you, in 2018, which, you know, cannabis three years ago is a lifetime ago. Yeah. I, my, when I first joined, my understanding of, of this highly regulated space was limited. Uh, and to cl- climb up that learning curve, you know, I began consuming as much material as I could about the space, you know, reading research reports, attending conferences, and, and the real learning uh, took place when I was speaking to founders that were looking for investment capital. And I wasn't really, I wasn't scared to look stupid by asking basic, basic questions. Um, and I used my lack of knowledge to drive me to learn everything I could about the space. Um, you know, but for example, like if I was speaking to a point of sale company, I would learn about the various mechanisms of compliance and how they had to build their solutions in order to scale across state lines. And if I was speaking to a plant touching licensed operator, 
I would learn about the markets that they operate in, the licenses they need to acquire, capital requirements uh, to begin a grow and learn about the various ways they would look at strategy. And eventually I was able to connect those dots and different schools of thought to develop my own thesis around where I believe capital should be deployed. And, and what, what piqued my interest most uh, were the businesses that could scale across state lines, which initially were just the ancillary companies and just really thinking about how big this space could be, you know, the, the total addressable market. And it's a market that exists, but it was primarily sold on the illicit side. Um, even in certain legal states. So it's really exciting to be a part of a space that's essentially still in its infancy and going through maturation, which will you know, continue to increase jobs, tax revenue, and eliminate the stigma around this miracle plant. Yeah, so you know, to that point, right? So FIDO, when you guys, when you guys first started investing, was really non, it was non-plant touching businesses. It was the ancillary, the picks and shovels, right? So were there any key, any key moments that prompted your team to shift from purely investing in ancillary to plant touching? And, and also just a little bit of you know insight, how do you guys evaluate plant touching versus ancillary investments? How do you approach those differently? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think we, we do. So we were founded with the thesis, like you mentioned, of investing specifically in ancillary companies. Our first fund were, were all ancillary investments. So software technology companies that facilitate the licensed operators. And somewhere along the way that changed because um, you know currently we're more opportunistic and open to investing in plant touching companies. I think when it all kind of changed and when, when we became more open to it was when Constellation made its large investment into canopy growth. And you know when there was movement at the uh, federal level in Canada, we, we kind of figured that the US may follow suit and decided to be more open to plant touching companies. And you know we started off by focusing on the California brands, which in hindsight might not have been the best place to deploy because, you know, although California is and will be the largest market from a sales and population perspective, it's an unlimited licensed state by nature. There's no scarcity of licenses. So, you know, in terms of market share leadership there, you know, I don't think that there's one player that has larger than, you know, five or 10% uh, market share there and, and compare that to a state like Florida, which is limited license in nature you know, TrueLeaf has around a 50% market share. So we started looking at these limited license states, which essentially means the states are more restrictive in how they allot licenses. And these states kind of have a sort of a moat for these operators that do business there. So, so our new and improved investment thesis around plant touching companies led us to investing in TerraSend early in 2020. And I actually had the privilege of meeting Jason Wild. Uh, chairman of Ter TerraSend and partner at, at JW Asset Management at FIDO's Boca office. And he pitched us on TerraSend. And, and lucky for us, we decided to invest. And we, we haven't looked back. That investment has done extremely well. And we believe there's still a ton of upside left. I agree as a fellow shareholder in Terrace and, um, you know, and I, and I love Jason and it's such a great company and it's amazing to watch, you know, you know, how, how they've grown over the past year. And I think, you know, the best is yes, yet to come. And, and also, so the industry is now at a very different place than it was, you know, about a year ago, right? Um, there's been so much momentum. So how, has, how have you guys adapted your investment strategy to, to address this recent momentum in the industry? Yes, um, there's lots of momentum, um, you know, cannabis being deemed essential, uh, despite being federally illegal was a huge catalyst. And also the elections in Georgia, um, the blue Senate, you know, has kind of given us a propellant and tailwind, uh, speeding up any of the timelines that investors and operators 
have kind of envisioned to a value creation event um, in the space. And so on being deemed essential, you know, if we ever do enter a recessionary environment, cannabis will probably follow the economics of vices, meaning, you know, sales will continue to flourish even during bad times. And on the legislative front, we will most likely see the passage of the SAFE Act in the near term, which I'm sure you've heard and and probably listeners as well. Um, Not entirely sure exactly what it will encompass, but it will certainly open uh, the floodgates for uh, these U.S. multi-state operators to have federally chartered bank accounts. And it will probably allow consumers to pay for cannabis with credit cards, which is a huge deal. I mean, if you look across all other industries, the bulk of sales are done with, with credit cards. So that'll, that'll probably increase the basket size and it will be very helpful towards the industry. And there's even a chance that the SAFE Act offers some sort of safe harbor language, which would allow large institutions that have been you know, prohibited from entering the space and investing in the space to come and play ball. So it's not the same as an uplisting event, which would allow these multi-state operators to move from the Canadian exchanges over to the US exchanges like the NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange. Um, That essentially will be the holy grail event for value creation in the space. And as far as investment strategy, we think on the plant touching side, licensed operator front, that it's a land grab. And we're we're being opportunistic with new deals coming to market, especially for the top MSOs. And we believe having access to capital at this critical inflection point is gonna be crucial um, and we believe that there's still a large amount of upside, even with the bigger players or biggest player like Cureleaf, um, you know, Green Thumb and, and Terrasend, even from a venture capital standpoint, which seeks higher returns than typical hedge funds, um, it's, still, it's still an appealing opportunity. And you know, we're life cycle investors. When we first began, we were investing in seed stage companies and sometimes pre-revenue. And as the industry has matured, you know, so is our investment thesis. We're primarily looking at companies that are Series A and beyond currently, and you know, trying to find market share leaders in their respective verticals. And if we do invest in younger, you know, seed stage companies, we're looking for strong management teams that have done something similar in the past, and we're looking for you know potential disruptors, which can be shown by you know taking market if these companies take market share from incumbents and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. You know, and also like in terms of life cycle, like and you said, you know, fund one really invested in some of these like early stage tech companies and you know an ancillary. So also given on we're talking on 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 the seventeenth of March yesterday that big a big deal was obviously announced. You know, for Dutchy, um, Leaf Logics, and, and Greenbits. So you know. For any, so I want to just talk a little bit about that for future cannabis entrepreneurs who are listening to the episode, right? So what are your thoughts on like all these companies in the ancillary industry? And, and are there still startup opportunities left on the tech and services side? Do you think that ship is ready to sail now that we're seeing like a real unicorn and this, you know, merger of these three, you know, big tech companies? Talk to us about that. Yeah, no, it's, I, you know, I believe most of the solutions that have allowed these licensed operators to do business and, you know, a regular way fashion, similar to how other mature industries like restaurants or alcohol um, are doing business. I think most of those solutions have been built, Uh, not to say that there isn't room for a newer, better solution. uh, But I think at this point on the ancillary side, it's, it's about entering these new states and, you know, bringing a better solution there or, you know, disrupting, you know, one of these you know, point of sale retail management systems or other, you know, ancillary tech companies and, and taking market share from, from market share leaders. Cause like you mentioned, you know, Dutchie, 
uh, GreenBits and, and LeafLogics, th those companies coming together make them a real force to be reckoned with. I mean, they have a significant market share of, um, of, of GMV or gross merchandise value running through their uh, processors. So it's going to be very hard to kind of, you know, come in as a, as a young company and, and take market share. But if you're able to do so and you have a, a great solution, it might be, you know, something that they look to acquire um, and stuff like that. But, you know, initially when we started in 2015, I think that's when we were seeing a lot of, you know, pre-revenue companies that came in to, to disrupt the space. For example, like a LeafLink, before LeafLink, dispensary managers had to, text or, you know, message brands individually to stock up their stores. And, and LeafLink said, you know, it shouldn't be done like that. They should have a, a great interface that allows them to stock, you know, a shopping cart online, similar to an Amazon type experience. Um, when we first invested in LeafLink seed round, they, they barely had any revenue, but they were driving, you know, 60, $70 million worth of GMV through the system. They had a couple hundred brands and they were only operating in two states. Currently, they're in 27 territories doing more than $3 billion of GMV. And, you know, they're a real force to be reckoned with. I think they, they handle like 30% of all wholesale cannabis transactions uh, in the legal U.S. cannabis space. Yeah, it's amazing to watch the growth, growth of LeafLink and like just their like their execution and like their concept, proof of concept is there and they've proven it, you know, it, it's pretty incredible to see what they've done and just, you know, what percentage of the market uh, they actually have. And, you know, we love that team. And, you know, you're talking about, you know, different regions. So as we know, the, you know, uh, Georgia went blue, legalization movement is in full force in the South and the East Coast, right, where we are, we're, we're pretty excited about that. But are, there's, are there any specific regions that your team is watching? And what opportunities excite you most about these states? What are you guys looking at? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think on the ancillary side, I think, you know, we're still looking at uh, advertising technology companies. We've been, you know, keeping synthetic cannabinoid companies on our radar. Uh, but for the most part, we're just looking to continue to follow on to market share leading portfolio companies and even later stage companies that are not yet in our portfolio but we believe are, are positioned to take market share because at this point in the game, uh, we're really at a critical inflection point where, you know, we want to be involved in companies with a strong balance sheet that can take advantage and acquire other businesses and really scale. Um, the, the time is now, you know, time is of the essence essentially, especially with what happened in Georgia. And in terms of like specific regions, you know, we think New Jersey, once the program takes off there, will be very exciting. New York, which is rumored to have a bill drawn up any day now, uh, that's, that's really exciting. Pennsylvania and Florida, which could legalize in the next 12 to 18 months. And, and all of these markets will be huge. I think New Jersey is predicted to be around $2.5 billion by 2025. New York, I think around $4 billion, Pennsylvania around $3 billion, and Florida should be over $2 billion by, by 2025. I think closer to three, actually. And, you know, all of those markets will continue to grow from there because, you know, the, the North Star metric in looking at these markets is really to look at Colorado and their per capita spend, which is around $380 per person. And if you were to use that and multiply that by the U.S. population, you would get a TAM, total addressable market, of close to 140 billion. And, and lots of the analysts in the space are, are, are modeling out 100 billion by 2030. Um, but essentially, if you think that, you know, it becomes less stigmatized in various states 
and they continue to grow even past once you know capacity uh, can meet the needs of the market just because it's becoming less stigmatized um, and more commonplace for people to to utilize cannabis the opportunity is really is really endless and not to mention you know with cure leaf's acquisition in europe that's a whole nother tam ex- expansion potential you know um, something that i personally haven't even thought about or modeled out in my um you know, upside case for these U.S. operators. Yeah, and talk about U.S. operators, and this really, I know we wanted to talk about today because it's so important. Like, one of the most remarkable developments in the industry is the amount of attention the U.S. MSOs have received over the past year, you know, with all these, you know, tailwinds at our back. You and many cannabis investors have been very outspoken about the upside of the MSOs. So what do you want people outside of the industry, like other accredited investors, institutional investors, to know about U.S. operators? Yeah, there's lot, lots of outspoken people, especially on Twitter. You have the MSO gang, you know, Todd Harrison. Uh, we even get some valuable insights from Jason Wilde. I, I think it's phenomenal. I think this is one opportunity that retail investors actually have an advantage over the institutions. But, you know, this is the, the great American growth story, as Ben Cobbler likes to, to say on CNBC. It's a story of cash flow positive companies with high growth long runway of that growth, high margins, limited license moats, and a steadily decreasing cost of capital um, over time, and a recession pandemic-proof business. These companies are currently trading at mid-teen EBITDA multiples, uh, 2022 EBITDA, compared to other consumer packaged goods companies, which trade around 20 to 30 times. And if you compare that to the Canadian companies, they're trading around you know, 40 to 60 times 22 EBITDA. So a significant discount just from a multiple perspective. Um, and not to mention, you know, the U.S. cannabis industry is predicted to grow at a 20% CAGR through the year 2030. So essentially for the next decade. Um, so in my conservative example, you know, base case scenario, if we, if we take 100 billion of retail sales by the year 2030 and assume that the MSOs sell half the product wholesale, half the product retail, they would capture, you know, 75 billion of that, of that TAM. And then if we assume 25% EBITDA margins, which is actually very low, you have the top tier operators currently uh, with 35 to 40% EBITDA margins. But, you know, if we assume that, you know, there's a little bit of margin compression and we take a 20% market share leader and use the low end of the Canadian uh, cannabis companies trading multiples of 40 times EBITDA, uh, that company, that one company with a 20% market share could be valued at $150 billion of enterprise value. Um, and right now, the largest being Cureleaf has around a $10 billion EV. So, I mean, that, that implies a potential 15 times upside case in the next decade. Um, and probably before that, because those numbers will be pulled and dragged forward. So by the time we're in 2025, you know, these companies will be valued at multiples based on 27, 28, even 2030 numbers. So I, I think it's really interesting. And the reason why retail investors have an advantage is because big, large institutions can't necessarily buy into these companies yet because they're worried, first of all, you know, if the federal government will come after them. And second of all, they're trading on illiquid exchanges um, like the Canadian Stock Exchange and the -the over-the-counter markets, which makes it prohibitive. And a lot of these stocks are actually none of these U.S. cannabis operators are listed on Robinhood. So a lot of retail investors can't buy their favorite cannabis stock 
or the favorite, their favorite dispensary that they go to on a regular basis because you know they simply can't access those securities. So a huge catalyst for you know a multiple reset and value creation for these things to go from 15 times EBITDA to 40 to 50 times EBITDA um, is really just an uplisting event where these operators will will you know transition from the Canadian stock exchange to the U.S. stock exchange. Yeah, and to that point, you know, so um, when comparing U.S. to Canada, right? So why is the U.S. market doing better than the Canadian market, or you know, and vice versa? Like, you know, they they have access, obviously, to the you know to the more liquid markets, but like, why why is the U.S. market doing better than the Canadian market? I think I think it's a story of of more demand from the U.S. cannabis consumer. Uh, the illicit market is still pretty big in Canada, and, and on the legislative front, they they fumbled a lot in in the past couple of years. And I think a lot of the the states in the U.S. have learned from this. And, and right off the bat, in Canada, there was tons of capital pouring into the space, and these these licensed producers were were growing more cannabis than they knew what to do with. And the international opportunity uh, of them exporting cannabis to these European countries, I think it was overblown and it never really came to fruition. And that's still a big part of their story today. And, you know, currently the majority of these Canadian cannabis companies are still not cash flow positive. And those that are have very low EBITDA margins compared to the U.S. operators, uh, which are, you know, proving to be much better operators in, in much better markets. Uh, but I think the real difference is the demand in the American consumer that's choosing cannabis. And, you know, if you can just look at the Canadian market today, uh, it's currently on a $2.6 billion run rate. And that's the size of Colorado alone today. Right. And once Florida, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania get to scale, I think they will all individually be larger than the Canadian market. And I'm not saying that there isn't room to grow in Canada, um, but I, I don't even think that current valuations um, you know, justified even the future growth there. So yeah, I mean, listen, I think we are all you know pretty understanding of, of what the Canadian obstacles are. But even in the U.S., you know, for U.S. cannabis companies, Plant Touch again, Ancillary, what do you view as the greatest obstacles to them scaling over the next few years? Like, you know, the Canadians have had problems. Like, and, and where do you not to be negative in the U.S. market? We're also pumped about it. What are some of the obstacles that that we're facing here? Yeah, I think a lot of people are worried that Philip Morris or these big alcohol companies are going to come in. And once it's federally legal, just essentially just take over the market. And, and I think that they don't understand kind of the structure of licenses and how these companies are going to actually have to pay a huge premium and, and buy these licenses from U.S. multi-state operators. The states aren't going to just start handing out new licenses. And, and at that point, you know, these, these companies are going to have established brands and connections with the consumer, and it's going to be much harder than other people think. But I think the greatest obstacle um, facing these U.S. operators, because I actually don't consider, you know, what my prior point, a, a huge uh, headwind, but I think the, the biggest obstacle are the handcuffs that these companies wear uh, from both a high interest rate perspective on, on their debt capital and the high effective tax rates that they pay because of 280E. Um, essentially, 280E taxes these companies at the gross profit level. So they can't write off regular way business expenses like rent, executive salaries, depreciation, interest expenses, et cetera. Uh, I think Green Thumb paid an effective tax rate of 54% when an otherwise similar business outside the cannabis space would have paid closer to 24%. So that's a ton of cash 
that could have been invested into the business. And these are growth companies that need to invest their capital back into the business. So, so that's, a huge, that's a huge hindrance of growth. And also the high cost of debt is another cash drain. So you know, once we have some movement at the federal level, either the SAFE Act, the States Act, or the MORE Act, we should see some of these handcuffs removed. And I think that'll be, you know, that, that'll be a very, very big uh, moment for the industry and these operators. Yeah. And, and on the other side, so what are you most excited about for the next 12 months in cannabis? Really just to see how everything plays out. You know, just watch it, watching this unfold with with the Biden administration, uh, watching to see, you know, the, the rollout in New Jersey and what happens in New York um, and really just all the M&A activity that's that's poised to take place, um, you know, with the operators that have access to capital, uh, you know, buying out various um, other, you know, smaller operators and, and rolling them up. And, you know, I think it's it's great for the industry and it's also great for those smaller operators because they're going to get to be a part of a, a, a bigger story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every time I see one of these, uh, you know, M&A transactions, I'm like, all right, it's happening. This consolidation, these big cannabis companies that are doing such great things across the country. It's quote unquote happening. So thank you, Jonathan, for joining us today. It was awesome to hear your perspective. And I, I can't wait to, you know, I love following you on Twitter. You always have like really great insights, both on the industry and on mindset, which I love because, you know, I'm a mindset gal. So keep on doing what you're doing. Hopefully, you know, we can touch base a couple months from now and see how all this unfolds. Thank you so much, Rosie. I, I loved our conversation today. And just to touch on that, you know, I think the best investors are not only reading investment books, but they're reading about psychology. They're learning about mindset because, you know, that, that's what that's what differentiates, you know, the way that you look at opportunities. So just wanted to say thank you. I appreciate you, uh, you following along on Twitter as well.